Hey, this is Kyle Glazer from Baseball America. You're listening to the Friars on the Farm podcast. Welcome to Friars on the Farm podcast. I'm Donovan and with me is Roy and we are Hello. joined with Baseball America's Kyle Glazer. Kyle, how you doing? Doing all right. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. God. So this must be the maybe the slowest kind of period for you right now uh, after the draft. Uh, no, not at all. Actually, we go straight from here into the trade deadline, which is also very, very busy. We're, you know, making sure all our draft reports are, are up and right. Uh, just, you know, dealing with that. And then I still have a lot of big league coverage I'm doing, uh, minor league coverage. And then uh, we've got best tools uh, coming up our next issue and features to write for the magazine. And then we've got the trade deadline. So really there is no slow time for us until uh, after we send the prospect handbook to press in, in December, uh, January and February are slower ish for, for us, but that's about it. All right. Well then to, let's get right into it. Round one that you know, the Padres picked up Dylan Lesko. Um, you know, a, a Tommy John, he's recovering from Tommy John, a, another high school pick for AJ. Uh, is this a, a tr- obviously a trend with, uh, with Preller to, you know, to pick at a high school, but the, the Tommy John recovery uh, is something new for him. What do you think about that? Well, they kind of did it with Cal Quantrill. You'll remember he didn't pitch at all at Stanford uh, at that final year. And then uh, the Padres made him their first pick in that 2016 draft. So they have kind of done it before. Uh, it's a little bit different because uh, Quantrill was further along in his rehab and was throwing bullpens. But look, I mean, it's one of those things where when you look around at the 15th overall pick, who's still on the board at that point, um, Dylan Lesko has, has shown himself to be a, a top 10, maybe even top five type of talent when he's been on the mound. Um, again, if the Potters had the fifth overall pick and, and did this here, it probably would have been too risky and not smart. Uh, but when you, again, look at who else was still on the board at 15, uh, Justin Crawford out of Bishop Corbin High School, Las Vegas, Carl Crawford's son is someone that was very interesting. Some of the Potters had a lot of interest in in particular, but uh, look, Lesko, high school right-handers are very risky. Pitchers who are already injured are very risky. So you kind of double up on the risk there. Uh, but what Lesko showed when he's healthy, the ability to be 95, 96 with a ridiculous change up field of spin. It's more than the stuff. It's the poise. It's the command. This isn't a guy who's just, you know, a raw arm who has some arm strength and feel for secondaries. I mean, this guy, when you watch him pitch, he looks more polished than a lot of the guys you see in low A or high A. Um, it's really kind of remarkable to see. So you definitely understand that the 15th overall pick, look at who else is around. It's a simple case of, hey, this guy's not only, you know, potentially the best player around, but potentially the best player by, by a full grade or maybe even a grade and a half. And at that point, you know, makes sense to take that risk. Now, I've seen people talk about him as if he's one of the best high school pitching prospects in years. Uh, yeah, I mean, he absolutely was. I mean, again, it's super, super rare to find someone who has this combination of stuff, uh, command, feel, and polish at any level. College, high school, low minors. Um, it was just a, a kind of a rare bird, if you will. And that's why that, you know, despite the fact he was a high school right-hander, which is an extremely risky demographic, most, most teams want nothing to do with. I mean, he was considered a consensus top 10 talent maybe even top five talent, um, you know, Cole Wynn, who went 15th overall back in 2018, he was similarly really polished with big stuff, but, but let's even a tick higher than that. 
uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is a really, really good pitcher. And that's why he was as renowned as he was uh, until he got hurt. Even after he got hurt, it was still a situation where it's like, hey, this guy probably still goes the top 20 picks, which just tells you about his talent, what he's the riskiest draft demographic there is, and what teams want to stay away from. And you add a serious injury on top of it. Sometimes we undersell the seriousness of Tommy John surgery. Now, the fact that you have that profile, that injury, and he's still a consensus top 20 pick, that tells you just how talented he is. Well, and, and let's go back to like, you know, I don't want to do the comp of Mackenzie Gore because obviously they're two different pitches, but it, it seems like he has, you know, just uh, the numbers at least, um, you know, throw away everything that's happened with Mackenzie in the past couple of years, but just the stuff wise is. McKenzie was a lock to be absolute stud, you know, blown through the system. Um, it's kind of similar to the same thing. Yeah. You think? Well, keep in mind, there's no such thing as a lock stud to blow through the system. There was still McKenzie Gore. He got off to a hot start in the major. Well, he got off to a hot start. Then he went completely backwards the better part of two years, figured some things out, came back got off to a hot start in the majors and is now uh, having some strokes in the majors. Um, pitchers, especially, there's no such thing as a lock. There's no such thing as an easy road. You should expect any and every high school pitcher to take five to six years minimum before they get right. Um, so I think it's important to, you know, temper expectations as talented as Dylan Lesko is. He's still a high school pitcher. Right. He's coming off a major surgery and there's always the risk that for whatever reason, the stuff doesn't come back. So I, I actually think it's very important. We temper expectations and use the McKenzie Gore example is, Hey, this is someone that people thought he's left-handed, which is a better pedigree. Right. Um, you know, and, and got off to this hot start. And even he has, has taken, you know, five years to get to the majors and it's not been smooth or pretty. So um, there's no such thing as a surefire lock to blow through the system with any pitcher and especially a high school pitcher. So to a couple of points you were just bringing up. So he's, he was the first high school pitcher to come off the board at number 15. Uh, he's righty. He's a Tommy John rehabber. Uh, but typically it seems like in the years past, there's a high school pitcher that comes off the board before number 15. Does that speak more to like a weak crop of high school pitchers this year, or is there like a change in draft philosophy across the industry? What do you make of that? Uh, it's just a very weak draft for pitchers in general this year, college and high school. Uh, this is, you know, these things are cyclical. Some years it's really deep in arms. Some years it's really deep in bats. This was a year where, um, pitching on both sides, college and high school was way, 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 way down. Uh, and teams really were kind of going to run bats up. Uh, even the pitchers who got taken, the college pitchers who got taken, you know, Kamar Rocker at three, Gabriel Hughes at 10, Cade Horton at seven, all of those were surprises. And, and we know Rocker is an underslot deal. Uh, Horton's probably an underslot deal. We have to see with Hughes. And, and all those guys were taken really, you know, their talent, said maybe a little lower with the exception of rocker but it's like hey we want an arm our system needs an arm and here's the best one available so no it's just a function of this was a really rough year for pitching a lot of it because of injuries i wouldn't read too much into anything greater here it's, this is a very cyclical thing you know so with 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 all this velocity is just it's insane how nowadays if you don't throw 96 97 you know teams aren't really going to look at you and I'm, there are plenty of examples of of that not being true but just seems like in the past maybe 15 even 20 years that guys are just throwing harder and they're throwing their stuff is better i mean what where where were these guys in the 70s and the 60s you know you didn't have every guy throwing i remember back in the 90s if you threw 88 89 like okay there we go 
it's like anything else, you know, track runners are running significantly faster now than they were then. You, we know a lot more about nutrition. There's better training tools. And, and a lot of these guys are, you know, embracing some of them at a younger age. Um, but if you actually look at it, throwing that hard that young is not a good thing. Uh, really touching above 96 as a high schooler, it's actually a horrible pedigree. And that's something I wrote about this a few years ago. Um, you really don't want any, you know, there's really no example of any high schooler touching above 98 going on to any sustained major league success. Uh, the only two who kind of have are Jamison Tyone and Dylan Bundy, and they both missed multiple seasons with injuries, and it's been more solid than exceptional. Um, so actually what we've seen pretty consistently is the best high schoolers are the guys who still are in those you know upper 80s, low 90s, maybe 90, 94, topping out at a 96. Uh, Jose Barris is kind of the one guy who is harder than that stayed healthy and has been a good major league starter. So in a lot of ways we've optimized velocity, right? Nutrition, right. training techniques, you know, you know, driveline, all, all the different training facilities. But in terms of actually those guys becoming effective major league starters, um, we're still seeing it. There, there's still such thing as too much velocity, too young. And again, I wrote about this a few years ago, uh, throwing 118 is not good. It does not portend success. You should run away from that the same way you run away at 82. You know, the perfect, the perfect area is, you know, anywhere from 88 to 94 topping out at 96 is really what you want out of high schoolers. That's really the max you want. Uh, interesting. All right. So on let go in your, uh, in your write-up right after the first day, you pointed out how aggressive the Padres were in recruiting him, such as inviting him to a pre-dra- pre-draft workout, knowing that he couldn't well work out at the time. Um, can you describe some of that for us? Yeah, so teams always are going to be having in-home visits with prospects, and they always invite guys to workouts, everyone from top of the draft guys to, you know, random local guys who, you know, the area scout maybe likes a little bit. You bring them in. If he performs well, you take him in the ninth round. I mean, that absolutely happens a lot. Um, so, you know, it's something where the Padres, you know, Del Lesko talked about it. The Padres talked about it, too, that, you know, obviously in the fall, they met with him and, and that's, you know, due diligence. I mean, you're going to meet with everyone, right? But once the spring comes around, you know, the Padres probably aren't going to waste their time bringing Drew Jones or, you know, Brooks Lee in for a workout. They know those guys aren't going to be there at 15. Um, Bill Lesko is a guy that, you know, maybe might've fallen into that bucket, but he got hurt and all of a sudden he is in there and you want to do your due diligence. You bring him in, you talk to him, you meet with everyone even though he can't throw, I mean, you want to get to know what makes this guy tick, where's his head at, how does he interact with people? Those are all important things and tell you a lot about whether or not someone will be able to survive the grind of professional baseball. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's part of the due diligence process. Uh, the Padres and every other team brought in a lot of guys to their stadiums for pre-draft workouts and pre-draft meetings. Um, but, you know, clearly they, they saw what they wanted to see from Bill Lesko, both in the fall and in the spring here, or I guess it technically would have been summer. And uh, that's a big part of why they made him the pick. You know, that's, uh, it, it's funny how teams really go in, you know, now they're really going in for the, uh, the makeup. They want to know more about the, the you know, the, the, not only the athlete, but the family, the coaches, they ask friends, they, they do their in-depth, uh, you know, kind of investigating with, um, you know, with, with players and not just, Oh, he's a great player, but he's kind of a, kind of a head case, or he might not be able to handle the grind of a failure or anything in, in, in professional ball. Or you so, give a kid a big, you know, $4 million yeah. paycheck and all of a sudden their personality changes. 
again, it, it's it, that's one thing. Again, is money going to change guys? Are they going to do something that's going to embarrass your team, such as you know getting arrested? The Potters have examples of that with Matt Bush, um, you know Donovan Tate, guys they gave a lot of money to and clearly did not do the makeup work on. You never want your first round pick to be, you know, on the front page of the sports section for off the field reasons, like they you know getting arrested or, or having you know serious issues off the field. So. Look, it's important to do that. It's also important to know that, look, I mean, we, we get lost, I think, sometimes in tools grades and velocity and radar gun readings and spin rates. I mean, pro ball is such a physical grind. And once you get the pro ball, guess what? Everyone has stuff. Everyone has the ability to throw strikes, especially once you get up to higher levels. What separates a lot of the people who make it from ones who don't is, do you work? Do you work to get better? Are you going to rest on your laurels? There could be guys who are good kids, but... They don't have that obscenely, you know, elite work ethic. They're not going to make it. It takes, I think people underestimate just how much work it takes to get to the major leagues, no matter how talented you are, how big your tools are. Um, you need to make sure the work ethic's there. You need to make sure the head on is, the kid's head on is, is on straight. Excuse me. The kid's head is on straight. You need to make sure he's not going to do anything to embarrass the organization. And, Sometimes it's important to check the family too, to know, Hey, are they going to be there to support him when he's having a tough go? How's he going to react when, you know, he's had five starts and he's gotten hit a little bit the first time in his life he's ever failed. These are all important things to know. And and again, there's a lot more that goes into making someone a successful major leaguer from the time that they're 18 years old than just, Oh, here's their stuff or their tools. I mean, it's important for teams to do their due diligence. That's, it's not really new. That's been true throughout baseball history. There's just more attention being paid to it now. Right. So going right into that with, you know, with a comp, a pick, uh, Robbie Snelling, another prep arm, LSU commit, you know, they were talking about the intangibles with him. What, what are some of those intangibles that they were talking about that are off the charts? <laughs> yeah, so he comes from a football background. He uh, was a standout high school quarterback, which obviously indicates some serious leadership poten- p- leadership potential and uh, leadership attributes. Uh, his dad was a high school football coach. Uh, his uncle was a high school football coach. So just, you know, a lot of mental toughness there. There's athleticism. And again, there's, there's work ethic. It's all those things we talk about intangibles-wise. Um, you know, the Padres talked to him extensively as well. They met with him in the home, got to feel for who he was. And, you know, just understanding that, hey, this is a kid who, all the things I talked about, you don't have to worry about him working hard enough. You don't have to worry about him having people in his family that are going to push him and, and support him in the right ways. Um, take, you know, the men's physical talent, you add those two things and it starts to look like a pretty good package. So you mentioned his football background. Um, it sounds like he's pretty bulked up as far, as far as his physicality. Um, how does that affect his projectability as a pitcher? Uh, Cause I understand the football strong and baseball strong are two very different things. Yeah, he actually changed his body composition a little bit. Uh, if you went back last year uh, during the summer, uh, perfect game, All-America game at Petco Park, uh, it was kind of that bulky football build. And, and as such, you know, it wasn't quite what people wanted to see uh, from a, a scout perspective. Uh, but he kind of came back and really kind of, you know, changed his body a little bit. Again, I mean, look, he's, he's, he's a big, strong kid, always has been, but um, it's, it's, it's better now it's gotten the way he wanted, you know, you want to be drops him the football weight deliveries, a little more connected In the last month. He was just kind of all muscled up and now it's a little more streamlined. I mean, so it's already kind of a different look where again, he's dropped the football weight streamlined it all. And 
Um, we're starting to see the, the improvements in the, in the delivery as such. So again, he's always going to be a bigger guy. He's, you know, six, three, two but, um, he's already started the process of kind of making it more baseball weight and athleticism than just pure football weight and athleticism. So was he ever a two sport kind of a, I mean, obviously two sports in high school, um, was he was he uh, uh, recruited as a football player as well? Do, do you know? So nothing publicly on like the public sites. Um, you know, it's not like he uh, had you know a lot of D1 offers at like rivals and uh, 24-7 are talking about. Um, you know, it looked like for the most part, it was still baseball driven. Uh, it seemed like there was a little bit of recruiting. But um, as I understand that everyone kind of knew that, you know, as good as he was as both a linebacker and a quarterback, his future was really in baseball. So a lot of the recruiting stuff that happened was, you know, was in baseball. He didn't, I, I publicly, I have not seen any formal offers on all the recruiting sites. You know, and he hits that sweet spot that you were talking about earlier with the upper eighties into low nineties, you know, mid nineties fastball. So there's lots of room to grow there. Yeah. I get, you know, with lefties, it's a little different. You don't need to project as much because the velocity requirements of them in the major leagues is a lot lesser than it is uh, for right-handers. So, you know, it's already pretty good. I mean, it's 90, 95 with a, with an 80 to 84 mile an hour slider. It's not like this guy's a soft tosser. So, you know, like I said, he's a young kid. I'm sure there'll be some delivery improvements. There'll be some strength gains where, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a chance he ends up with, you know, plus fastball plus breaking ball, Um, you know, but again, you know, even if the gains aren't huge, he has stuff that'll play. It's not really like he's a soft tosser or anything. So has the risk of drafting high school players lessened, or is this just kind of a thing that AJ Preller started leaning into a little bit more? No, it hasn't lessened at all. I mean, high school players are still a very, very risky bet. You know, people kind of say, oh, upside high school, safe college. It's kind of a false dichotomy. Um, there's a lot of college guys who are super high upside. And uh, look, drafting high schoolers is risky. Uh, I believe the most recent breakdown of major league rosters was about 50% of all major league rosters are college draftees, 28% are international signees, and 22% are high schoolers. Uh, this is more just a case of when their pick comes up, you look around and who's the best guy available in both of these spots. Uh, it happened to be high schoolers. And I think even if you look at, you know, who else they could have taken at 15, uh, you know, again, I think the other player who was probably the best available happened to be another high schooler. And that was Justin Crawford uh, out of Bishop Corbin high school. So um, this isn't really a philosophy thing as much as, Hey, who's the best player available at this pick and it just happened to be less going selling. So the third guy that the Padres picked was another high school righty. Um, oh no, I'm sorry. He's a college college righty, Adam Mazur. Um, what can you tell us about, about his profile? Yeah. You know, he's, he's kind of just a really good pitcher who does everything well. There's no like giant plus pitch there, but you know, he's got a pretty good four pitch arsenal. I uh, started off at South Dakota state, went and pitched in the Cape Cod league, showed really well there, transferred uh, to Iowa, you know, bigger program there at the big 10 and, had a really, really good year. Um, this was a weird year where a lot of really good college pitchers got hurt. And what ended up happening is he was one of the guys who stayed healthy and kind of raised his profile. Um, you know, there was talk at one point that maybe he was going to sneak into the first round. It wasn't quite, you know, a sure thing. It was maybe if some things jump. Uh, but throughout the draft process, I mean, he was seen as a, as a solid second rounder who just, again, like, Four pitches, good stuff, throws yeah. strikes, 
Uh, but we talk about, you know, college guys, you know, not always just being safe. Like they still have some projection left. A lot of college guys had velocity. He's another guy that, you know, he's not filled out yet. You know, I don't think anyone in the world is the strongest they're ever going to be at 21, 22 years old. Uh, he's got some room, you know, he'll, he'll flash you up to 97. He's more 92, 94, but you know, it's the fastball plays. Um, he's got, you know, good cutter, good slider, throw strikes. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's, he's a good pitcher. Um, and I think, you know, there is a very real chance that we look up in a few years and, Hey, if you know, Lesko never comes back fully healthy from surgery and smelling, you know, just being a high schooler, doesn't work out. We look right. up at Adam Mazers in the back of the rotation. Like it shouldn't <laughs> surprise anyone. Four pitches, control, good athleticism, performance. Like, yeah, that's a good pitcher and a good second round pick who's taken exactly where he should have been. So, yeah. So go on. Uh, so uh, someone, Adam Mazers, someone that can go through, you know, get through the system pretty quickly and become a, a major league piece. Potentially, again, I, I really hesitate. Pitchers take longer. Um, so I, I think, you know, saying a pitcher can move through the system, generally, you know, we tend to say that a lot or people tend to say that a lot, that very, very, very rarely actually is the case. So I would, again, I'd really just leave it as, hey, it's a good pitcher with good stuff, good control, good delivery, and just let it develop, let it play out as it will. If it gets up in two years, cool. If it takes five years, also cool. Um, I really would just kind of leave it at that. Yeah, two years. We saw that with Joey Lucchese and Eric Lauer a couple of years ago, and it was kind of a case of the team had a need at the big league level, but you also had a couple of college guys that that continued to perform well, and they didn't need a whole lot of work once they got into the system. Um, we don't really know what these guys are like until we – get them into the system, see what they start doing. Um, and that, that'll come later this year, you know, without a whole lot, without short season ball, it's going to be interesting to see how these guys all, all filter in there. Um, but it sounds like two years is about the best case scenario for somebody to be able to push their way through. And even then they got to shove, shove, shove. Yeah. Again, that, that really is the, you know, hundred percentile outcome. And that should never be the expectation. If it happens, cool. But again, yeah, just let this guy develop and, and go from there. So we're moving on to round three. Henry Williams Duke, another arm that Preller just needed. To, he needs arms in the system. Uh, you know, what do you have on him? And I, I find that interesting because earlier you said that this is not a strong draft as far as pitchers go. Uh, but but Preller came out the gate going pitcher, 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 pitcher. Yeah, and again, in terms of guys at the top of the board. There's a lot of pitchers who you say in the third, fourth round that fit, but there's not a lot of first round talent. So let them get hurt, got hurt. Um, and Henry Williams is one of them. He had Tommy John surgery last December, didn't pitch at all this year. So, you know, you're taking him here, just kind of taking a shot. He's athletic, 6'5". Um, you know, he showed good stuff when he was healthy, uh, looked good in the fall, you know, fastball up to 95 with a potential plus slider. Uh, but again, he didn't pitch at all this year. And this is a case of a guy who, you know, hey, if maybe he did throw, maybe he goes in the second round. But again, you look around for the Potters and say, it's the you know back of the third round. You look around at who's still available, take a shot. This is a guy who, when he was healthy, showed you a lot of promise. Uh, but again, I mean, two of their top four picks had Tommy John surgery and, and really didn't pitch this year. That's a big risk. Um, but they looked around at the rest of the town in those spots and said, you know what? If Dylan Lesko comes back healthy, he has a chance to perform like a top five player of this class. And if Henry Williams comes back healthy, you know, we have a chance to have gotten a second round talent at the back of the third round. That's just a situation where they decided to take that shot. And 
you know, again, there's logic behind it. It's a lot of yeah. risk, but they decided to do it. You understand why they did it. So taking a step back and kind of looking at, at the draft, the the list of the players that, pot, that the Padres drafted, um, you know, AJ Preller tends to draft guys, position players that play up the middle catcher, shortstop, center field with the idea that they can move down the defensive spectrum as, as they develop. This year, he selected not one, but two first basemen in Nathan Martorella and Griffin Dershing. Um, so what, what do you think that would say about these players just kind of just, you know, as an uninformed observer? Again, I really would not read too much into the strategy behind a fifth round pick and eighth round pick. It really is as simple as, hey, looking around, who's available, who's someone we like. I think a lot of times, you know, we try to analyze every single pick as part of some grand strategy. It's really not. It's especially when you get to this point, it's, hey, who's here? Who do we have highest on our board? Great wise. Let's take them. That's really that simple. Um, you know, again, the Padres, they have a lot of guys, their system who are up the middle guys. And, they also have some guys who are corner-only guys. Again, um, Martorella is someone who always had really good strike zone control and on base skills and started hitting for power this year. He's left-handed, bad, major program. You say, yeah, sure. Again, it's more case you look around who's around him. and Yeah, take that guy. Um, Griffin Dorshing is an older guy, but he has absolute light tower power. And especially when you start getting to the eighth round, you're looking for one big tool because most of the guys who have multiple plus tools are way off the board. But if there's someone here who has a 70 tool on the card, you take them. And in this case, Storching's power. Uh, he's very, very old for the draft. Uh, he's a grad transfer. I believe he's almost 24. And, you know, oh, wow. the history of, of first phase only guys who are that old uh, doesn't pan out well. But again, you take a, in the eighth round, there's someone with a 70 tool on the card. And it's one that's, you know, one of the main tools, hitter power. Yeah, take the shot. Yeah, he's a he's a right-handed hitter too. Um, so that right-handed hitter, right-handed throwing first baseman, all that stuff kind of works against him. Makes me think of uh of uh uh Luke Voigt. <laughs> no, no, I was thinking the the, the Padres all-time minor league home run king. Um uh, Cody uh, Decker. Yes, Cody, Cody. Decker. <laughs> okay, so the Padres picked four high school seniors uh on the third day between rounds eleven. Through 20, Isaiah Lowe, Henry Martinez, Hugh Pinckney, Spence Kaufman. Um, do you I'm I do you have any idea if the Padres intend to sign them all, or is there like a draft and follow kind of intent here? Uh do you have any idea of feel for what the play is? Oh, we have to see again, you know, speculating on signability of high schoolers two days after the draft is not something I think we or anyone else should do. Um, look, typically high schoolers taken this late don't sign. Um, most of them go to college, but we'll see, you know, maybe one of them really wants to come out and sign and, and maybe that's what happens. But typically high schoolers taken, you know, around 16 to 20, they end up going to school because they have a good chance to make a lot more money in three years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Last year, the Padres picked Gage Jump and Chase Burns, knowing darn well that they had essentially zero chance. It seems like every year Preller picks a couple guys. Um, I don't know if that's just to have a conversation with the guy or, or, or what, uh, why would a team draft a high school player late in the draft, knowing that they have no chance to sign them? Well, it's not just Preller who does it. Every team does it. The reason they do it is in case one of the you know top guys they signed or one of the top guys they draft, excuse me, in case something comes up, if there's, you know, an injury on the medical, they didn't anticipate and as such, they have to lower the bonus offer. They could still look and say, hey, the $3 million we saved from that guy, there's still you know, a, a 
really good high school player that's considered a top three rounds talent that we took in the 20th round thinking, hey, we're not going to be able to sign him, but it's the backup plan. If something goes wrong with one of the guys you, you drafted high up. So it's more of a, an emergency you know, situation where if, if the money's there because something else goes wrong with someone else, you still have someone that might be you know, a top three rounds talent and all of a sudden you have extra money that allows you to sign them. Yeah. So, so moving on to kind of generalizing the draft, you know, now that the contraction of the minor leagues, um, you know, and there seems to be a boiling down. I, I the only way I could say it is the boiling down of, of talent that, that can reach the major leagues. Um, now you have these draft leagues, you have these, you know, the, the Appy league now I think is a collegiate uh, partner league. Uh, what has that shown early on in this uh, that it's, you know, if it's worthwhile or is it just kind of just playing to those communities and putting uh, baseball, keeping baseball in those communities, do you think? Yeah, I mean, Major League Baseball, one of their big things was they were going to keep baseball in the communities that were losing uh, their affiliated minor league teams. And, you know, for the most part, that has been the case. But, you know, it's also kind of insulting to those fans to suggest they don't know the difference between seeing, you know, a young Mookie Betts versus, you know, someone in the draft league who, you know, most of the guys in the draft league are guys who sign as non-drafted free agents or maybe, you know, day three picks. So, yeah, I mean, there's baseball there, but it's nowhere near the same as it was when it was professionals who were playing. I mean, I think back to, you know, a few years ago, I saw Wander Franco playing uh, for the Rays rookie ball affiliate in the Appalachian League. Uh, the guys that are now playing in that league is draft league. I'm telling you right now, there's no Wander Franco in there. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I think it's more just a case of, you know, Major League Baseball wanted to contract the minors. This was their way of saying, oh, we're keeping baseball. But um, again, I think for them or anyone else to suggest it's equivalent is just outright false. Now, I, I know you tend to focus on the, the pro side of things, uh, but how has scouting the draft been different this year with more involvement from Major League Baseball? Um, you know, we mentioned the, the Prospect League. There's been more showcase games that have been done under the MLB umbrella. Um, is there more access to pitched and batted ball data is there access to biometrics that wasn't around in years past well they instituted a lot of this for last year too last year's draft was the same it was the first year of the combine it's the first year of the draft like the prospect league so scouts have had two years now uh kind of getting used to this you know the combine where it's become more useful is players can meet with teams and mass more and that's something teams have talked about they get a lot of value in you know some of the guys who go out there you know They've seen these guys, you know, game after game after game after game, you know, go watching them pitch one inning in a combine is, is not really going to materially affect a guy's draft stock uh, for the most part. So it's more about meeting them face to face. You know, the the draft league and some of those other leagues, it's, it's more of a, you know, yeah, they're going to go see them, but it's not really, again, a huge part of their coverage. There's a couple NBFAs, a couple day three guys. You know, the majority of the way teams scout um, is still is still what it was. And some of the data influx, you know, that's always been coming. You know, on the college side, that's that's been there for a couple of years now. You know, on the high school side, they've had it at, like, the major showcases for a while now, PG National, uh, you know, Worldwood Bat Championships and the like, uh, you know, NHSI during the regular season. Now there's just more of it, you know, more data on more guys from you know the draft league and, and various events like that. How do you feel about a 20 round draft? Do you miss the 40 round days or back when it was like a hundred rounds? 
Uh, no, I, I mean, I think truthfully, um, you know, getting it to 20 rounds, uh, you know, does make sense. You know, we saw every year, especially once you got into the twenties, you know, teams taking people who didn't even play baseball, the Potters taking Johnny Menzel in the 28th round. Remember? Uh, why do you have to the remind Mar- us of that? You know, the Mariners taking Trey Griffey who played football in the 24th <laughs> round, just because Ken Griffey Jr. wore 24. You know, I, I thought that was always kind of insulting to the guys who actually played baseball. And, and there were always good players to be found off the 20th round. Ty France being a, a great Padres example. Uh, even J.D. Martinez, people forget, he was a 23rd round pick. So, or 22nd or 23rd. So, yeah, but but I think, you know, kind of calling it down to 20 rounds, getting rid of some of that ridiculousness is a good thing. Um, and, you know, I think it just comes down now to teams being smarter about looking at, hey, there's this guy who's hit every single year in college. We should probably take him in the 18th round instead of the 34th. And if they don't, they can go get him as a non-drafted free agent. So I, uh, to be honest, I, I'm not too upset or I don't think there's anything wrong with getting it down to 20 rounds and keeping it strictly to actual baseball players. Okay. So speaking of undrafted free agents, uh, We've now that after the draft, you guys do a good job of tracking this stuff. The Padres have already signed 13 undrafted free agents, and I'm looking up and down the list. I don't think any other team has signed more than like five or six. A lot of teams have only signed one or two. What the heck is the deal with that? <laughs> Seems so unexpected. Yeah, I mean, it's just you know, Padres looking at their system and seeing some holes. You know, one thing to keep in mind is the Padres farm system right now after years and years and years of trades is, is not very deep. Um, you know, they have a really good group of guys at the top of their system, you know, five top 100 prospects. You know, there's a couple guys, you know, back, you know, behind them that, you know, are, are pretty interesting in like the number six to 15 range. But once you get the prospects 16 to 30, it's, it's not particularly strong. It just isn't. And then you still have to have guys who can actually physically play the game and, Look, there's a lot of guys I'm seeing right now at Lake Elsinore that, yeah, the college NDFA is a better, more talented player than some of the guys that I'm seeing at Lake Elsinore this year. So it's just about signing as you know players you can to put the best players on the field you can. And even if, you know, example I'll give, you know, even if the catcher at Fort Wayne or Lake Elsinore isn't a prospect in the sense of a guy who real, you know, major league potential kind of guy. You still want a guy who's a good receiver, call a good game and, and handle a pitching staff and ha- help your pitchers develop. Yeah. Um, you know, and if the guy you have right there is not doing the job, yeah, go sign the NDFA and let him start because he'll do a better job of it. So a lot of it's filling holes. A lot of it's looking at saying, hey, the second baseman we have at this level right now, this NDFA is probably better than he is. So let's let's sign him and play him instead. It's really just a function of, of stay in the farm system and, Look, there are other years, other teams sign more guys. Um, right. You know, the Padres are a, a pretty large scouting group. They do a really good, thorough job. Um, and they looked around this year clearly and said, hey, we feel like an influx of NDFAs will help improve the overall quality of our system. And that's why you're seeing them be so aggressive. Yeah, you see, well, last year, I think with Cole Cummins out of uh, UC Santa Barbara, was one of those guys that we saw. I saw a lot of at Lake Elsinore where, dang, undrafted, he's pretty good. A little bit older for the league. Now he's up in Fort Wayne and high A, but he seems to be holding his own as an undrafted free agent. Yeah, there's always guys here. You know, we, again, we talked about there are guys who were drafted rounds 20 and later, uh, 21 and later, I should say, that have become good major leaguers. Now those guys are available as NDFAs. So 
it's nothing wrong. Sign a couple, see what happens, and a couple of them pop. Um, you know, I wrote a story earlier about a couple of NDFAs from the 2020 draft, which is only five rounds that have really popped, which isn't a surprise. We see a lot of sixth, seventh, eighth rounders in the majors doing well, and uh, a lot of those guys, you know, would have been sixth, seventh, eighth rounders. It just was no sixth, seventh, or eighth round that year. Um, but yeah, no, again, it's it's something where you sign them and give them a shot, and you never know what's going to happen. Right. You need you need nine guys to play around the two guys that you know that they're really looking at. Um, is there anything that you want to uh, you want to promote before we let you go? We really appreciate you taking the time and uh, and talking with us, Kyle. It's been eighteen months because the last time we talked to you, I think your wife was pregnant. Yeah, yeah. Now my daughter's uh, almost sixteen months old now. Uh, yeah, I would just say go ahead and check out Baseball America. We have scouting reports on. Every player that was drafted in the top 10 rounds for every team and a lot more for players drafted around 11 to 20, hundreds of reports there as well. Uh, we've got a lot of post-draft analysis, a couple of stories I wrote, including one about Dylan Lesko and the Potter's uh, decision to draft him. I encourage everyone to check out and then keep it here for the trade deadline. You know, it's, uh, you know, only two weeks or so away, amazingly. So, um, yeah, it's less than two weeks away. So we'll have a lot of coverage of that as well. So, uh, yeah, just, you know, go check out all our draft coverage and, and keep it there for uh, for more of our trade deadline coverage that's coming up. Speaking of which, do you want to dip your toe in the Juan Soto trade deadline talk? Sure. Yeah, I wrote an article about it on Tuesday. And, uh, yeah, what you got? I mean, who is really poised? I mean, what makes sense for what team? As as Padre fans, you know, it's funny. I go back and forth like, God, that's a, you know, an amazing talent, but he's going to be incredibly expensive, even to next year's arbitration going into 24. Um, and then just kind of selling the farm along with maybe a, a major league piece or two, uh, depending on what, you know, what happens there. It's almost not worth it for a team like the Padres, but it feels like Preller does need to make a splash. So I actually have an article about this right now. Uh, the 10 teams that have the prospects to make a move for Juan Soto. I think every team wishes they did, but very few actually do. I'm actually going to disagree with you there. Um, if the price is Mackenzie Gore, CJ Abrams, Robert Hassel, um, and you know, I would make that trade for Juan Soto. Uh, this is a very, very special rare talent. Everyone tends to overrate their own prospects. And I actually have written multiple versions of the story. Only about one in five prospects traded at the trade deadline ever goes on to be any sort of consequential major leaguer. It's it's about one in five. So, and a lot of them are big time prospects too. Um, you get three potential pennant runs with one of the best players in baseball, best hitters in baseball. Um, yeah, I would absolutely do it for Gore, Abrams, and Hassel, and, and probably one or two other you know decent you know prospects somewhere in the top you know. Oh, 15 to 20 range of the system, you know, maybe it costs more. Um, and we have to see what the exact cost is, but if it's one big leaguer and, and their top two prospects, um, I pulled the trigger and I don't think twice about it. And it just depends on what other teams are going to offer. The Potters are not the team with the most to offer. The Dodgers are, they can blow anyone else's, you know, prospect package out of the water. They just have more of them. Um, you know, the guardians are a team that would never do this trade. But in theory, they have the you know the deepest farm system in baseball outside of the Dodgers and a lot of good young big league talent. Like they could put together a package. Again, I don't think they will. And the Cardinals, you know, it's kind of funny to me. People seem to think of the Cardinals as this mid-market team. Let's not forget this is the team that in its recent history has traded for Mark McGuire, Jim Edmonds, 
Matt Holiday, Scott Rowland, and just a few years ago, Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado yeah. is yeah. the team that makes big splashes. And the Cardinals have seven prospects in our midseason top 100 and a bunch of good young controllable big leaguers. Um, you know, the Cardinals and Dodgers are the two contending teams that, you know, have a history of take on salary that could blow away any offer the Padres put together. But if they get stingy about it and don't want to part with some of their guys, the Potters have the pieces to do it. And I wouldn't hesitate for them to do it. Wow. That's good stuff. Uh, you know, it's it, the reality check is, is like, you're right. Like the Potters are, can do it. Will they do it? And other teams can really, really, you know, thicken that plot and put more, I guess, more into a trade. Uh, Kyle, we really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thank yeah you. My pleasure. Yeah. My pleasure guys. Wow, and it's been a long time since we talked to his his daughter is like 16 months now. His wife was pregnant the last time we talked to him. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad you asked him about the Juan Soto thing. Um, yeah. yeah, that's something I I've had a lot of discussions going on on Twitter today. I kind of dumped my brain out, and I it's I I don't know if there's a little bit of a prospect hugger side to it, but I I think it's kind of an uh, an opportunity cost thing that uh, that you can only get so much value. So am I going to dump all of these players into one, one player to get one Soto, or am I going to sprinkle it out here and maybe, you know, try to move a bad contract over here, try to find a new relief pitcher over here, find an outfielder with some thump over there to, to fill out the roster. Okay. Yeah. It, it, it was, it was great that he, you know, he chimed in and he has some really good points in that article. Other teams have the stuff to do it. Other teams have the money to do it, uh, you know, and to, to sign, you know, to trade for him and then sign him. I don't think that kind of happens. I think whoever gets him won't sign him. He'll just test free agency and, you know, have, you know, make more money than a small third world country. Uh, yeah. I just hope that Padres don't wind up getting jerked around like last time with, with the whole Scherzer thing. And it seems right. like, like Preller's being brought into the conversation just to drive the price up. It, it, it stings. Yeah. So let's move on here. Uh, thanks guys for staying with us. We have uh, about another eight minutes of content here. The meeting is going to end again. Um, Fangos came out with a really great article on Robert Hassel, the uh, third David Luria uh, of Fangraphs, Fangraphs wrote this. Uh, Robert Hassel, the third hasn't ex- experienced much adversity in his young career since being drafted eight, eighth overall by the San Diego Padres in 2020 out of Tennessee high school. The 20 year old outfielder has climbed to number 42 on our top 100 prospect list by lodging a 134 WRC plus last night. He was in the starting lineup for the national league in the futures all-star game. He went one for two in that game, by the way, nice knock up the middle RBI knock. Very good. Uh, he shows that he's well-equipped to handle adversity when it does occur. The sweet-swinging Nashville area native went through a cold stretch in May, and just as he was emerging from it, he contracted COVID. That learning experience is what Hassel chose to share when I sat down with him in late June to ask about his season to date. Quote, I had a three for 30 stretch, something like that, which I hadn't had in pro ball or really anywhere, said Hassel, who spent the season with the high A Fort Wayne tin caps playing every day. You've got to be able to make immediate adjustments. And it took me a while to get going again. 
Basically, I had to begin simplifying things, which is something I continue to do. It's something that we we talk about. These guys are the best player on the field, every field they're ever on right. until they finally hit that point where they start to struggle. Yeah. Uh, mature, mature beyond his years. The third ranked prospect in the Padres system agreed when I suggested that a slump doesn't necessarily mean that changes are in order. Quote, that can be an adjustment itself, realizing that you don't need to change anything, said Hassel, who was featured in our talks hitting series in April. At least not mechanically. It's about knowing who you are. And like I said, keeping things simple. Looking back at video, it might be like, there is no real difference between that guy and what I'm doing now. That's why I'm big on the mental part of the game. Someone could pull up videos of two ABs and they wouldn't be able to see a difference, continued Hassel. But I'd know that I felt terrible in one of them and then felt good in the next AB. That's yeah. something people watching the game can't tell. Yeah, that's um, excellent insight and a level of maturity. And, and Kyle really talked about it, the makeup, the, you know, the self-awareness, the, the know then that it's going to be a long, like it's not, it's a process. It's a, you know, I hate to say this, it's a journey um, going through the minor leagues and maybe even making it to the major leagues. That's huge. And it's funny how, you know, and I'll relate this to my rec league, like two weeks in a row, just raking, raking. I felt like the ball with the ball was a huge, it was a beach ball. And next week felt weird in the box. Didn't, you know, it just, things looked different, felt different. And emotionally, I was different. And uh, it, it's just amazing how sports does that to you, particularly with baseball. It's such a confidence thing. You, you know what you needed to do? You what? needed to unbutton your jersey one more button and let some of that chest lettuce out. I do not have any lettuce. Man. I have like, <laughs> seriously, I have like Homer Simpson hair on like red, like three little hairs like Homer's head. And, and that's it. Uh, not all of us are blessed with the chest lettuce. Oh, I don't know if I'd want it, to be honest. I, you know, I, I think it, particularly with me, too. Like, I didn't like I. Yeah, I'm not sure that's for me. I don't know if that, you know, with guys like us that, you know, don't have it or like, OK, with not having like I'm OK with not having a, you know, hairy body like that because um, other parts of your body is hairy as well. Um, let's move on. So okay, so quick. while Hassel occasionally got out of his approach during the downturn, something he readily admits to, he also squared up balls only to have them find gloves. Quote, you're not always going to have the results you want, said Hassel. I got unlucky at times, but every hitter gets unlucky. That's baseball. And so that speaks to where you have to focus on the process, not on the results. Um, and the things that David Lorilla brought out in this article uh, really kind of points that out to me that, okay, yeah, he's looking at video and you can see the mechanics in it, but he knows what he was thinking as right. he's stepping into the box and where his mindset is. And that has so much more to do with your success than the actual mechanics of what you're doing. You see, you see, I'm a golfer. I see lots of golfers with bad, ugly swings and they get great results out of it. You see guys with beautiful swings. And they just can't play a lick because it's right. it's it's between the ears. Yeah. And uh, baseball, it's it's much the same way. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, absolutely. So moving on and finishing up with MLB Pipeline's hottest hitter for each team uh, in the minor leagues, and that was James Woods, the number three uh, for the Padres in MLB number ninety. So he's cracked the number ninety. San Diego's 2021 second round missed all but three games in May with a right wrist injury, but has been outstanding since returning to single A Lake Elsinore in mid-June. July has been his best stretch yet with the outfielder batting 333, 449, 579 with two homers and 14 RBIs. Wood came in, Wood came in, Wood came within a double of the cycle to start the month. 
Five days later, he collected three hits and five RBIs. And his in his debut season last summer, Wood batted 372, 465, and 535 in 26 games at the rookie level, ACL Padres. Now through 41 games in Lake Elsinore, his numbers sit at 325, 447, 563. The man is a menace. So we went to the game last Saturday, and did you see the laser beam that he hit that bounced off the top of the right field wall? Yes. And he wound up running into it out at second base. Yeah. Well, he hit the ball so hard that it ricocheted off the wall and pretty much right back to the right, right fielder. And he was busting his butt to get around to second base, but the ball beat him there and he was out. I, but if that, if that wall's five feet lower, that ball's going 400 plus feet down the right field line. That, that thing would have been just below the second deck at Petco. Yeah. I, it, it, he's got so much power and it comes out so easily. Yeah, we should see him. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see him in the next month or so. I mean, he's got to finish the season in high A. You think so? I think they might leave him there. He missed a bunch of time. Um, and, you know, as as you pointed out, a couple of his reads in center field were a little bit adventurous. Right. Um, and then we don't know from a maturity off the field standpoint how the guy's presenting himself. That's one thing that Robert Hassel, there was never a question about that. Like he shows up to work every day and there's never a doubt and not saying that that's a question about James Wood, right. but you know, they have to check all those boxes before they, they move on. Uh, and then there's got to be a spot for him. So Hassel right. has to move up to double A. Yeah. And that's the other thing. So they just, they've got 13 undrafted free agents. You've got 35 plus spots that they're going to have to open up. There's going to be a whole rash of transactions probably by the next time we talk. Yeah, absolutely. So, hey, you guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can catch me on Twitter at SD Donovan. I am at Zippy underscore TMS. Go, Padres. Go Padres. Padres.